I believe that the Holy Spirit is here. I believe He's here every week, but I believe that this morning we are especially being attuned to His presence. And so this was not part of the script, but I like it when God flips the script. But we have a young man who for several months has been going through all kinds of physical difficulties. It's been tough to identify what's going on. And uh, he's asked to be anointed this morning. And I know that uh, just Friday we had three of our folks from this church that were in the hospital for one reason or another. And um, I had to visit them. I know my family's sick right now. Um, the little one is especially sick. And so only one of uh, my kids is here with me today. It seems like Satan's attacking a lot of people's health. But the great news is that Jesus is the healer. He is the divine healer. He is more powerful than Satan. And so I've got my hand loaded up with oil. And Pastor Jason, if you don't mind grabbing me a paper towel from the back, I'm going to have to dry this hand off after we're done praying. But if you need healing this morning, you don't want anointing. And by the way, it's up to God. We cannot control God. We cannot manipulate God because He is God. All we can do is put our place, ourselves in the place where He can work. But I believe he's moving this morning. I want to believe he wants to do something special. And maybe this is a bold statement, but if you don't believe in divine healing, this is probably not the church for you. Or maybe you can let God convince you that he still heals. Because we believe that God still heals. We believe that through his Holy Spirit, he divinely touches people. And so this morning, if you have any sort of thing going on in your physical, any sort of thing going on in, uh, in your body that you need to touch, I invite you to come right now. Come and stand in. I'll know that you're going to be anointed, and we're going to pray over you, and we're going to believe that the Holy Spirit is going to move, and we're going to believe that God is going to touch those who are sick. And you can stand in for somebody else. If, if there's somebody in your family right now that's sick, you can stand in for them, and we will pray over them. We will pray for God's touch on them. And I believe God's going to do something amazing. It sure isn't me, and it's not even the oil. The oil is just a symbol of the Holy Spirit. But if you're coming up right now, and you're going to have to help me so I know who I've touched and who I haven't, but if you're coming up right now, that says you want to be anointed this morning for somebody. Okay, and after, you've, after we've anointed you and prayed over you, if you would kind of step over to the side uh, so that we, we know who the next person is. This is... Holy Spirit's in control, God's in control as much as we can surrender to Him right now. And so uh, we're just going to let Him lead. Again, this isn't in the script, this isn't in the plan. This is just something I believe God is doing right now. What a beautiful name it is, the name of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come right now. And God, I have no power in and of me except for the power of the Holy Spirit, God. God, thank you that the Holy Spirit dwells within us, lives within us, God, can touch us, can raise us up. And Father, I, I thank you that you don't have to heal us. Jesus did not have to heal when he walked this world. But God, he did that as a sign of the kingdom that was coming, the kingdom that was dawning in him. And so God, I pray this morning that you would give us just a little foretaste of what glory is going to be like, where there's no more sickness, there's no more pain, there's no more mental anguish and suffering, God. We thank you that you're giving us a taste of that this morning. And God, we don't want this to be a show, and we don't want this to be anything in the flesh, God. We want this to be the power of the Spirit moving. And so, Father, we pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we anoint those that are here. 
God, we pray that you would touch them in a new way. God, that you would bring healing to them or whomever that needs the healing, God, that they're standing in for. And those of you as I've touched you, if you will just move to the back so we know who's been touched and who hasn't. But God, we just pray right now for the Holy Spirit anointing, God. We pray for healing that comes only from the Holy Spirit, God. We thank you that you are the great healer. You are the divine physician, God. And we just pray right now that you would touch all these folks that are here, those that are standing in for others. God, I know there's those of our number that have had tests run this week and they're awaiting their results, God. And I just pray, God, that you would give good results, that you would baffle the doctors, God, that they, they could magnify your name, these folks, because of what's been done in them, Lord. We pray that you would touch, God. We pray that you would move right now. Lord, we did not know this would be an anointing service, God, but we trust and we believe that you are doing something special here, God. Anyone else who needs a touch, come, come to the front. It's not a touch from me, it's a touch from the Lord. Father, I just pray that you would touch, that you would bring healing right now, God. We thank you that you love us enough that you bring healing, God. You don't have to do it, but God, you love us enough to touch us. You love us enough to bless us, Lord. Father, thank you for moving. Thank you for being in our midst this morning, God. God, we pray that you would just heal, that you would lift up. God, we've already seen it this week. We've already seen you touch your people, God. We've already seen you bring healing. Father, there's situations out there that need healing right now, God. There are maybe marriages that are on the rocks, God. Maybe there's financial healing that needs to take place. God, I don't know all the situations, but Lord, we know that you do. We thank you that you are powerful. We thank you that you are good. We thank you that you love us. We thank you, God, that your Holy Spirit is here and you are moving in our midst this morning, God. May your name be glorified, God. God, I pray for a special touch, Lord. I pray that you would move, God. I pray that you would open up pathways, new ways, God. I pray that you would bring restoration, Lord. Anyone else who needs a touch, if you're still waiting, you can come forward. God, we thank you so much, God. We thank you that you're here. You're doing something special. God, we don't want to be so scripted, God. We don't want to be so polished that we don't allow any room for the Holy Spirit. And so, God, I pray that we would be a church that listens to you, that listens to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. And, God, if it scares us, it probably should. Because, God, you are mighty and you are powerful and you are wonderful, God. And I just pray, Lord, that you would continue to bless, you would continue, God, to touch, and you would continue to do amazing, amazing things among us. Thank you, God, so much for being here. Thank you for what you're going to do during this service. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Let's give God some glory this morning. Give God some glory this morning. That is one of the dangers, guys, of our modern way of doing church. There's a lot of good things, and you may be seated. There's a lot of good things about the way we do church in the modern church world. There's a lot of things that may have a little bit more wisdom than the way some things were done in the past. But also sometimes we get so scripted and we get so formal that we forget to allow God room to move. And so I pray that he, I believe he moved this morning. I believe that God had something special to do in people's lives this morning. Yeah, I remember several years ago, I was at a, the church I was pastoring before I came to this church. And I remember 
people came around the altar and we prayed and, and we anointed with oil and one lady came I had no idea while we were praying over her I had no idea what her concern was she was actually praying for a neighbor of hers it was a little boy who constantly had to go to the doctor constantly had to have different medications and things just a young child and he was going through so much and this lady actually came to the altar and we prayed over her I, I still don't know the little boy's name I've still never met him but she told me six months later she said pastor Brent do you realize from the day we prayed over that young boy at the altar, he, he never had to have another medication. He, had, he, had to, he was able to stop his doctor's visits. From the time we prayed over him at the altar forward, God did something and he was totally healed. And that convinced me of divine healing if nothing else has. But I also believe that God's word shows us that there's divine healing. And I know there are ways of thinking. There are doctrines and theologies out there that, that say that God doesn't do that anymore. And I love them, but I believe they're wrong. I believe God still moves. I believe God still blesses his people in that way. Well, glad you're here this morning. Today is kind of a continuation of last week. It's kind of a continuation of us talking about the fact that Jesus died on the cross for our sins and what that meant to us. And so last week I talked to you about why I believe in the cross. Today I want to talk to you about why I believe in the resurrection. Why I believe in the resurrection. This is another core Christian doctrine. This is another thing that we hinge our faith on. This is a very, very important teaching. And like last week, I kind of tremble as I come forward to talk about the cross. I tremble as I come forward to talk about the resurrection because these are so essential to our faith. And I have to preach it right and I have to get it right because there is power in these teachings no matter, I believe, which way we choose to tackle the topic, there is so much power. And I just want to say, if you are here today, or if you're watching online, and you're a skeptic, you don't believe in Christianity, you don't believe in the church, you don't believe in the movement of Jesus, if you're here today or you're watching online and you're one of those people who does not like Christianity whatsoever, I will tell you how you can get rid of the whole movement. I'll tell you how you can stop the church. I'll tell you how you can get rid of this 2,000-year-old movement of Jesus Christ. I will tell you how, you know, a lot of times people say, all those Christians are trying to force their faith on us. They're trying to force their beliefs on us. Now, those people have no problem forcing their beliefs on us. But if we have an opinion, if we have a say-so, oh, we're for I can tell you how to stop all that. There is a silver bullet, there is a magic pill, there is a way to get rid of Christianity now and forever, and it's very simple. All you have to do if you hate Christianity, if you're watching online, if you're here today and you don't like Christianity, you don't like the church, and you say, Brent, surely nobody's here like that. Maybe, I don't know. But if somebody's like that here today or they're watching online, the only thing they have to do to get rid of Christianity is to prove that Jesus never rose from the dead. If you can prove that Jesus never rose from the dead, it's over, it's finished, it's done. Let's go do something else. Let's become something else. Because what we're doing today is just a big waste of time if Jesus never rose from the dead. And by the way, I'm not the only one who said that. I'm not the first person that has said that it will kill Christianity, that it's the silver bullet, it's the kryptonite, it's the Achilles heel. Actually, the Apostle Paul said that around 2,000 years ago. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 14 through 19 says this, And if Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless, and your faith is useless. 
And we apostles would all be lying about God, for we have said that God raised Christ from the grave. But that can't be true if there is no resurrection of the dead. And if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you are still guilty of your sins. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. This morning... If Jesus Christ never rose from the grave, if he died and he never rose again, if God didn't raise him back to life, if the Father didn't bring him back to life, we are fools this morning. We are foolish for being here. I am foolish for wasting my life doing what I do instead of going and doing something else. I should focus on money and career building and all these other things. I am wasting my time being a minister of the gospel if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. But I'm here this morning to tell you I believe Jesus did rise from the dead. I believe he did come victorious out of that grave. I believe he's alive today. I believe Jesus is present here through the Holy Spirit. He's in this room right now. And you say, well, I can't see him. There's lots of things in this world you can't see that are powerful. Like right now, we've got a, we've got a bug that's going in. I don't mean like an insect we got a bug that's going around our house, and we can't see it, but it's going from one member to the other, and they're, they're starting to cough, and they're starting to get fevers, and I said, I'll be the last one. That's usually how it works. It circulates the house two or three times, and then it jumps on me. And Hopefully not. We, we pray to God that that's not the way it goes. But We can't see it, but it's powerful. It's there. It's moving. Jesus is more powerful than that. The effects of Jesus Christ being alive and being risen are more powerful than any virus, any bacteria, any of the things that we can't see. Jesus is more powerful than all that. And in fact, he's the greatest force for good that's ever lived. And I believe he still lives. I believe he is risen from the grave. You say this morning, well, Brent, do you have any evidence for that? Do you have any evidence that Jesus rose from the dead? Well, I wouldn't be presenting this topic if I didn't. So here's how I want to get at it this morning. Here's, I think, an interesting way to get at the idea of the resurrection. And by the way, just as in every sermon that's going to be part of this series, I'm going to give you guys a lot of facts. I'm going to give you a lot of rational, reasonable thought. I'm going to give you some philosophical underpinnings, some historical underpinnings for the resurrection today. And I just got to say this up front, don't get bored. Okay? This is important stuff. This is good stuff for us to know as Christians. Or if you're a skeptic, if you don't believe in Jesus, these are good things to help you think it through that, yes, maybe Jesus really did rise from the grave. So don't get bored. We've got a meal after church, and I hope that you guys will participate in that. I hope that you'll participate in our meal to wait, raise money for Awanas, get to know each other. So we don't have to run to the chicken hut quite as, quite as quick today, all right? So everybody just let's tune in and let's get this while we're going through it. I do believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And what I want to do today is take a, top, a few of the top arguments against Jesus rising from the grave, and I want to destroy them. That's what I want to do this morning. I want to tear down the arguments against the resurrection. But before we go any further, before we get into those arguments, we really need to define our terms because different people, when they say the word resurrection, mean different things. And I want to let you know exactly what the Bible means, exactly what Christianity means when we talk about the resurrection. When we talk about the resurrection of Jesus, we are not. We are not speaking of some sort of spiritual resurrection. We are not saying that Jesus just came out of the grave as a spirit 
or as a metaphor or as a symbol or anything like that. We're not talking about a spiritual resurrection only. We are saying that Jesus rose again in the same physical body that died on the cross. We are saying bodily he came out of the grave. In his body, in his humanity, Jesus came out of the grave. The Greek word that the Bible uses for resurrection 40 times is anastasis. It's where we get the, the name Anastasia. But the Greek word is anastasis, which literally means to stand up on your feet again. Jesus literally rose from the grave. He bodily rose from the grave. The disciples could touch him. The disciples could eat with him. The disciples could actually place their hands in his wounds. He physically rose from the grave. And by the way, if anyone teaches that he did not physically rise from the grave, that is not orthodox, little o, orthodox Christianity. That's something else. I know there are groups out there like the Jehovah's Witnesses and like the Shepherd's Chapel group, and there, and there are groups out there that teach Jesus spiritually rose from the grave but not physically rose from the grave. That's not Christianity. Christianity teaches Jesus physically, bodily rose from the grave, and that's important. We'll, later on in this sermon, we'll get to why that's important, that Jesus physically, bodily rose from the grave. Jesus rose again in his body. That's the definition. That's what we're looking at. That's what I'm arguing for this morning. So now let's look at some of the arguments against that. What are some of the things people say that would say, Jesus didn't really rise from the grave? This should be fun. At least it's going to be fun for me. I hope it's fun for you, but I know it's going to be fun for me. So are you ready this morning to tear down some of these arguments? Yeah? We're good. All right. All right. Because if you don't participate, I've got to preach longer to make sure you get it. I'm just, just letting you know. Letting you know up front. Argument number one, a fairly old argument, probably most popularized by David Hume, who was an atheist in the 18th century. Argument number one goes like this. If true, the resurrection would be a miracle, and miracles defy the laws of science. If true, the resurrection would be a miracle, and miracles defy the laws of science. I'm going to give you guys a highly technical, highly technical, very, very, tough to understand, going to have to think this one through a lot, make sure you're, you're with me so you catch this. I'm going to give you a highly technical argument against that argument. Are you ready? Duh. There it is. Duh. Of course, if Jesus rose from the grave, that would be a miracle. And of course, miracles defy the laws of science. That's what a miracle is. A miracle is something that goes outside of the ordinary. A miracle is something that doesn't follow the laws of nature, that doesn't follow the laws of science. So when somebody says, well, I don't believe in resurrection because I don't believe in miracles, all they're doing is circular thinking. I don't believe in miracles because I don't believe in miracles, or I don't believe in God because I don't believe in God. That's no better than us as Christians when somebody says, why do you believe the Bible? And you say, well, I believe the Bible because it's true. True, but it's not a great argument. It's circular thinking, thinking. It's circular reasoning. Saying that people don't normally rise from the grave doesn't prove it's impossible that someone one time rose from the grave. And they'll say, well, you know what? The resurrection can't be proved with science. That's right. It can't be. Neither is it supposed to be. You don't prove historical things through the scientific method. I could not go back and prove to you that John Wilkes Booth killed Abraham Lincoln by the scientific method. It would be impossible. 
It would be impossible to go back and prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that fact through the scientific method. By the way, a lot of people say we shouldn't believe anything that can't be proved with science. But there's a lot of things that can't be proved with science. Husbands and wives, you can't prove that you love each other with science. You can't prove that there's a true love between you with the scientific method. We can't prove historical things with the scientific method. There's all sorts of things we can't prove with the scientific method. In fact, what should be applied to a historical event is not the scientific method, but it is the historical method. Eyewitnesses, testimony, ancient sources, archaeological sources, those are the things that prove a historical event, not the scientific method. So all of these arguments fall flat, and basically all these arguments are saying is, I don't believe in God, so I don't believe in the resurrection, which takes us right back to square one. But if you posit that there is an all-powerful God that spoke everything into existence, that knows the stars and calls them by name, that told the seas, you can come this far, but oceans, you can't come any further, and established that boundary, that created mountains, that created the way this entire world operates. If you establish that there is a God that powerful, then resurrecting one holy person is not impossible to him. It would be possible. So obviously, if you believe in God, you can believe in the resurrection. Did Jesus rise from the dead? That's what we want to prove today by historical evidence. So that's the first argument that really doesn't get us anywhere when somebody says, I don't believe in the resurrection because it's a miracle. Argument number two is this. The disciples of Jesus just made it all up. The disciples of Jesus just created it. You know, they loved him. They, they walked with him for three years. They, they heard him teach. They saw him heal people. He was a great and holy and wise teacher. And so to honor him after he was crucified, they made up this story that he was still alive. That's the argument that you'll hear a lot of times. The disciples loved him so much they couldn't bear to part with his memory. And so they said he was still alive. So he was still alive. They just made it all up. But there's a couple of historical things that argue against that explanation. The first one is there were a lot of would-be messiahs at the time of Jesus Christ. There were a lot of people who were supposed to be the savior of Israel, who were supposed to be the messiah. And what would happen is they would rise up against the Roman Empire, and the Roman Empire would put them down and put them down hard. They would destroy their movement. They would destroy the leader. And you never heard of that person again. There were many of them that rose up. Very few even make the history books because Rome just didn't play around with things like that. They were the most powerful entity in the world. And when these little uprisings would happen, they would simply crush them. And so we don't find anybody saying any of these other people rose from the dead or that their movement should be carried on. None of that happened. These other messiahs were wiped out of history. But Jesus was different. Jesus was different. The disciples of Jesus actually claimed that he rose from the dead. They actually claimed that even after he was crucified on the cross, he was still Lord and he was still worthy to be followed. Christianity, early Christianity, was different than all of the other things. The disciples of Jesus also went to their graves refusing to deny that. Ten out of the twelve disciples of Jesus met a martyr's death. In fact, they, they laid down their life for what they believed in. If we look at the original 12 disciples of Jesus, Judas, of course, was the betrayer, and he betrayed Jesus. He went out and he hanged himself, and that was the end of his life, and so that's one. 
One of them actually was predicted by Jesus that he would live until Jesus returned again. And his name was John. John received the revelation from Jesus on the Isle of Patmos. And we believe John lived to be somewhere between 90 and 100 years old. And we believe that John died of natural causes. The other ten all died gruesome, heinous deaths because they believed in Jesus and they would not stop saying that Jesus was Lord. One of them was a guy named Peter. You remember that Peter betrayed Jesus three times. Three times he betrayed Jesus. Three times he renounced Jesus. Jesus restored him. He took the gospel and he was the head of the early church. And, Jesus, and Peter was eventually crucified when they came to him to crucify him, not according to the Bible, but according to history. When they came to Peter to crucify him, Peter said, I am not worthy to die in the same manner that my Lord died. Crucify me upside down. And they did. That's one of the stories. Another guy is a guy named Thomas. If you remember Thomas, we always call him what? Doubting Thomas because he's the one that doubted. He would not believe that Jesus was really risen until he saw Jesus, until he actually placed his hands in the wounds of Jesus. This is a painting by Michelangelo Caravaggio, I believe one of the most amazing paintings of history. And that's of Thomas actually looking at and actually touching the place where Jesus was speared on the cross. An amazing painting. But Thomas, who we call Doubting Thomas, an interesting thing about him is he so believed in the risen Lord after this encounter that he went all the way to India and he took the gospel to India and he actually ended up being speared to death. He actually ended up, it's ironic that he placed his hand in the spear wound of Christ and he took the gospel to India and he ended up dying there saying Jesus was Lord in a land that has 300 million gods in Hinduism. He went and he said, there are no other gods, Jesus is Lord. And he died for that. You know, now, so t 10 out of the 12 disciples died with martyrs' deaths. And you say, well, Brent, Martyrdom doesn't prove that something's true, and I would agree with you. We talked a little bit last week about 9-11. Those guys who were the hijackers, the 19 hijackers who flew the planes into the buildings, believed in their cause. They believed that they were dying for the right cause. Martyrdom doesn't, uh, doesn't prove that a cause is right. What martyrdom proves is that the person actually believed in their cause. And these guys would have known if Jesus really rose again or not. They would actually have known it. They were eyewitnesses. They were actually there. They would have known if they were believing a lie. They would have known if they just made it all up. And don't you think under pressure of death, you're going to recant and say, wait, wait, wait a minute. At least one of them would have said, hey, we made it all up. We made it all up. He was a great teacher. We made it all up. Please don't kill us. But none of them did that. Even under pressure of death, they said, Jesus is risen. Jesus is Lord. He's the most important thing to me. He's my Savior, and I'll lay down my life for him if I have to. That speaks to the truth of Christianity. That speaks to the truth of the resurrection. And it argues strongly against the idea that they just made it all up. The disciples knew and they never recanted. They never turned their back on their Lord. Argument number three. The resurrection is just a myth that developed over time. The resurrection is just a myth that developed over time. At its very core, this argument says that as time went on, as years went by, people romanticized the death of Jesus and invented the idea of the empty tomb and the resurrection. Thirty years ago, if you had gone to different, uh, different colleges, different religion departments, and if you had talked to New Testament experts, probably most of them would have, who were skeptics would have said, yeah, that's what happened. 
They mythologized Jesus over time. We have all these late sources. There was nothing written about Jesus early. And, and as time went on, they eventually turned it into a myth about Jesus being raised again from the dead. But something has happened in the last 30 years that changed that scholarship. Something has happened in that last 30 years where now even skeptics, even those who would not claim to be Christians in religion and New Testament departments believe that there was a resurrection, that Jesus actually, there was actually an empty tomb. They just try to have a different explanation for it than what the Bible actually has because they don't want to become Christians. They don't want to live for Jesus Christ. But a guy named Gary Habermas, who was actually one of the world's top scholars on the resurrection, developed an argument about 30 years ago called the minimal facts argument. Look, I'm not going to take you through all of that this morning because you will fall asleep, okay, especially if you're not into this sort of thing. But just know you can find it on YouTube pretty easily. You can look up Gary Habermas and you can look up the minimal facts argument. But all you have to know about it really is this. Now about two-thirds of the New Testament scholars in America, even the skeptics, believe that something happened and there really was an empty tomb and the disciples really did have resurrection experiences with Jesus after he had been crucified. And many of them say, we know this is true, we just can't explain it. This minimal facts argument, I'm not going to go through all of it, but basically what it does is it takes one section of Scripture. I'm going to read it to you and then we'll talk about it. It's 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 9. Paul is writing here and Paul says, I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins just as the Scriptures said. He was buried, he was raised from the dead on the third day just as the Scriptures said. He was seen by Peter and then by the twelve. After that he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time. Let's stop right there. When it says 500, that may be just the men. A lot of times in counting and reckoning in those times, they just counted the men, they just counted the heads of household. So that could actually be more than 500, but it's at least 500 that saw the risen Jesus. Most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. Last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I, Paul, also saw him. For I'm the least of the apostles. In fact, I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle after the way I persecuted God's church. Two things that make Paul a reliable witness. The first thing that historians would say makes Paul a reliable witness is he was somebody who was not a Christian from the very beginning. Paul at once, at the very first, was persecuting the church and trying to wipe it out, but then he claimed to have an experience with the resurrected Jesus, and he totally flipped, and he became actually the greatest proponent of Christianity in his day. And so that makes him a reliable witness because he was not biased from the beginning. He also, according to any historian, when you look at Paul's writings, they will tell you he was a first-rate philosopher. He was brilliant. He was absolutely brilliant in the way he saw the world, the way he broke things down. And so those two things combined to make Paul a very reliable witness. But the minimal facts argument is this. The very first part of 1 Corinthians, let me read it again, chapter 15, verses 3 through 9, says, I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins just as the Scripture said. He was buried. He was raised from the dead on the third day just as the Scripture said. He was seen by Peter and bent them by the twelve. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time. That section there is an early Christian creed. It's basically a hymn. It was basically a poem set up because you have to realize 
in the ancient Near East, you're dealing with a lot of people who are illiterate, a lot of people who are not well educated. And so they would actually make these creeds almost in a Hebraic uh, poem form to teach them the truth about Christianity. All of that is important because of this. We can trace the first part of that passage to within one to two years of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It's very early. It's a tradition that goes because traditions and myths develop 100, 200, 300, 400 years after the fact. This was actually stated a year to two years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. They didn't have time to make anything up. They didn't have time to mythologize everything. This points to the fact that Jesus really was, there really was an empty tomb, that Jesus really did rise again, so they have to come up with another, another explanation of why. If you're a Carolina fan and a Duke fan, I'll give you some Carolina and Duke stuff here real quick. Let's put the picture up of those two guys if we can. Bart Ehrman, who was at UNC Chapel Hill, and E.P. Sanders, who is no longer with us but was famous at Duke, neither one of these guys are what we would call an evangelical Christian. Bart Ehrman is basically an agnostic, somebody who used to claim to follow Jesus. Now he claims that he doesn't follow Jesus and he doesn't know what the truth is. E.P. Sanders would describe himself as a liberal theologian who probably do not, did not believe in most of Orthodox Christianity. Interestingly enough, both these guys are skeptics, but both these guys believe that there was an empty tomb. Both of these guys believe that something happened there. Now, they don't want to believe in Jesus. They don't want to follow him, and so they don't say that it was a resurrection sent from God, but they believe something happened there because all the facts so strongly point to the idea that there was an empty tomb. Because for the empty tomb, there is early eyewitness testimony, three groups, hundreds of people, that's almost impossible to argue away. The resurrection was seen by too many people and was described too early to be a religious myth. And now people who aren't even Christians are having to admit that and trying to explain it away some other way. The tomb really was empty. The tomb really was empty. They really did see the risen Jesus Christ. And now even those who don't like Christianity are having to admit it. Argument number four. That was the longest argument, by the way. Argument number four. Well, maybe Jesus didn't really die on the cross. He just passed out and woke up in the cool of the tomb. Y'all, come on, you're getting silly now. When you get to this point, you're getting silly. It's called the swoon theory, that Jesus just passed out on the cross. They put him in the empty tomb. In the cool of the tomb, he woke up and he walked out, and everybody said, oh, God resurrected him, but really he just passed out. Let me give you the best argument against that. The Romans were really good at killing people. They were experts at killing people. They had crucified thousands of people. They were very good at making sure somebody was dead. Second of all, the guards who were posted at the tomb would have been killed if they let somebody come in and steal the body of Jesus or if they had let somebody come in or if they had let Jesus just simply get up and walk out. They were there under penalty of death. So what it would take to believe that Jesus passed out and then later in the cool of the tomb he woke up and he walked out is we're supposed to believe because these people don't believe Jesus was God, that he was divine. We're supposed to believe a Jewish rabbi was beaten nearly to death, that he was nailed to a cross for six hours, that he was stuck in the side with a spear, but after all that he had the strength to wake up in the tomb and take the stone that covered the mouth of the tomb, which by the way weighed about a ton. 
The stone by itself would have weighed about a ton. It would have taken about two men to close it up, but the way the stone was positioned, it rolled downhill. So once it rolled downhill into place, it would have taken about 20 men to roll it back up again. Okay, 2,000 pounds, about a ton. We're supposed to expect that Jesus, after this horrible beating, after being nailed to the cross, after being stuck in the side with a spear, woke up and he had the strength to move a one-ton stone uphill and walk out and everybody said, oh, there's Jesus, he's back again. That's what we would have to believe if we believe the swoon theory. Come on, let's be real. That is beyond belief. That is beyond credulity. The third thing that argues against it is that we know Jesus died on the cross. You say, Brent, how do you know that Jesus died on the cross? Well, there's a little bit of medical information that has slipped into the story about Jesus dying on the cross that they didn't understand at the time when it was written because medical technology had not figured this out yet, but we understand today, and here it is. It's John chapter 19, verses 31 through 34. It says, it was a day of preparation. The Jewish leaders didn't want bodies hanging there the next day, which was the Sabbath. And a very special Sabbath because it was Passover week. So they asked Pilate to hasten their deaths by ordering that their legs be broken. Then their bodies could be taken down. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the two men crucified with Jesus. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead, so they didn't break his legs. That's not the medical fact. This is. One of the soldiers, however, pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water flowed out. Now, you would think that a body who had been crucified, if it stabbed with a spear, you would expect that blood would come out. That's very natural. But blood and water is a very interesting point in all of this. In fact, the early church didn't necessarily understand this report, and so they tried to spiritualize it. And they said the blood stands for salvation and the water stands for cleansing, which spiritually may very well be true, but medically something different was going on. Medically, Jesus had taken such a beating and had gone into such shock, he had what we now call a pericardial effusion, which is water around the heart. But he also had a pleural effusion, which is water collecting in the lungs. Medicine at that time had no idea about this. Medicine had not advanced to this point. But when John writes about the, the spear being thrust into the side of Jesus and blood and water coming out, the explanation for that is that what he had taken such a beating, and this happens today in car wrecks or when somebody's been beaten nearly to death, maybe in a fight or something like that, water collects around the heart, water collects in the lung, and if you were to pierce it, blood and water would come out. John was just writing down what he saw. He was just writing down what he observed. Medically, I'm sure he didn't understand it when he wrote it down. But now we understand that that's proof that Jesus really did die on the cross. His heart was pierced by the spear. His lung was pierced by the spear. The text already tells us that he was already dead. But when he was pierced, both blood and water came out. And now medical science knows why that is. He had taken such a beating for us. He'd been beaten to a point where supernaturally, if God didn't give him strength, he wouldn't have even made it to the cross. And he did that for me, and he did that for you. And there's proof of it right there in the biblical historical account. And by the way, if Jesus merely swooned, and if all that happened, and he actually got up and he rolled the stone away, and he walked out, can you imagine what Jesus would have looked like after that beating? 
after being nailed to the cross, after being a body almost destroyed, after being beaten with that cat of nine tails whip that just destroyed his body, after all of that, would he have been a Messiah that anybody wanted to follow? But the disciples didn't say that he merely came out of the grave. The disciples preached that he came out victorious out of that grave. And he was the Lord of all creation. And Jesus as Lord was the main creed of the early church. He didn't just come out barely and just barely make it out on some sort of technicality. Jesus rose victorious out of that grave. And the disciples believed it. And not only did they believe it, they were able to convince thousands and then eventually millions of people that Jesus rose out of that grave. So that's the fourth argument. Number five, they might say, well, is that all you got? No. I've got a lot more arguments that I could tell you about. I could tell you about the fact that if, historically speaking, if you were making up a myth in that day and time, you would not claim that women were the first ones to see the resurrected Jesus. Because women's testimony in court did not count as strongly as a man's testimony in court back then. And so if you were making up a story, you would not have said that the first ones to see him risen were women unless it actually happened. And it actually was that women were the first ones to see Jesus. By the way, I'll clear something up in case anybody ever wants to know. Brent, are you a feminist? Well, not in the way that our secular society talks about feminism, but I am a biblical feminist. God loves men and God loves women. And it's amazing that God chose for those to, the first ones to see his son resurrected, he chose women to bear testimony to that. Eve was the one that was deceived in the garden and fell into sin, but then these women who were the daughters of Eve were the ones who actually saw this new creation coming through Jesus Christ. So I could tell you that. I could tell you about the fact that when John looked in the tomb and the Bible says that he saw the grave clothes folded up, that what it actually means is that John saw the grave clothes not unwound like a body thief, like a grave robber would have done if they unwound the garments that were around Jesus. It was actually like the body just disappeared out of those garments. And they were neatly folded there where Jesus lay. And John, as soon as he saw that, the Bible says, he believed. And I could tell you about that. I could tell you a lot of other things that point toward the resurrection. But let me give you my favorite argument. My favorite argument for the truth of the resurrection. Me and you, the church, we're here this morning because Jesus rose out of the grave. Christianity, go ahead and clap there, that's good. Why is Christianity the biggest movement this world has ever seen? Because Jesus rose up out of that grave. He came forth victorious. All odds against him, Jesus rose up out of that grave. There's an Anglican priest, a guy named C.F.D. Moulet, who gave an, a, an amazing quote. He said, if the coming into the existence of the church, that's me and you, a phenomenon undeniably attested by the New Testament, rips a whole, great hole in history, a hole the size and shape of the resurrection, what does the secular historian propose to stop it up with? In other words, where is the, where is the alternative explanation? Why did a group of 120 people, because that's all that were in the upper room, why did a group of 120 people with the entire Roman Empire against them, with the Jewish leadership of that day, religious leadership against them, with all of culture, with all the world against them, how in the world did 120 people become 2.1 billion Christians in the world today without the resurrection? What was the driving force? What was the force behind that if the resurrection didn't happen? I don't think there's a good explanation. I've never been given a good explanation other than the fact that Jesus rose again. 
I showed you guys this, guys this video maybe a couple of years ago, maybe three years ago, so some of you may remember it. But it's a video about the spread of Christianity in this world. As you watch the spread of the church, as you watch this video, the church is in white. I want, to, I want you to just watch this. It's how it's so powerful that God behind his church has moved throughout this entire world. Let's watch together. resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why it happened. That's why that white has covered the entire world based on the power of the resurrection of Jesus, based on the power of the Holy Spirit. God has spread his church throughout all this world, the most powerful force for good. And yes, I know there have been times in history that the message of the gospel has been perverted for one reason or another, for political gain or for economic gain or whatever. And I understand that. But overall, Throughout the years, the greatest force for good, salt and light in this world, was spread because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And here's what's great about that, church. Here's what's great about that. It's not just that we have a resurrection of Jesus, but the Bible promises us that if we will be found in Him, if we will confess with our mouths that Jesus Christ died on the cross and that He was raised again on the third day, if we will confess that, if we will believe in our hearts and confess it with our mouths, then we will be saved. And there's a resurrection to be had for us as well. Preached earlier, or preached last year, about a young man named Jeremiah Thomas, and I shared with you his story, a young man whose father is, and family have been in ministry for a long time and had a rare form of cancer. And as I watched it, as we watched everything unfold and as they prayed for him and as the cancer got worse and worse and it did eventually take his life, his family was so powerful, so strong during all this, they actually would gather together and they would sing praise to God as their brother was dying of cancer. 
And one of the songs they sang that touched me so deeply was the song that we're about to sing. And it's a new song that we've not done here before, but it's one I think you'll catch on to real well. But they gathered around and they sang, as their brother, as their son was dying of cancer, they sang, the resurrected king is resurrecting me. That's the promise that we have through the resurrection of Jesus. If we will share in his death, we can also share in his resurrection. The fact that Jesus rose again, that he came victorious out of that tomb, proves that dead human flesh can live again. That we can come forth victorious, that we can be resurrected because of his resurrection. I want us to sing this this morning. I want to sing it as praise to God for the fact of the resurrection, for the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But if there's somebody here today who needs to know and be part of that resurrection, this area is open. You can come pray. We're not going to do anything to, to force you or push you this morning. We're just saying this area is open. If you need to come and pray, if you need to do business with God today, if you need to share in the death of Jesus Christ through giving up your way of doing things, through confessing your sins, through believing that Jesus was raised from the dead. If you need to do that today, come and make your peace with God and start walking with Him. And one day, if the Lord doesn't return, we're all going to go the way of the grave. But listen, one day they'll tell you that Brent Tysinger is dead. If you're still around to hear about that, they'll say that Brent Tysinger has died. Don't you believe it? Because I will be, my body will be in the ground, but my spirit will be the, with the Lord. And one day I'll be resurrected unto glory forever. Not because of what I've done, but because of what Jesus has done. And you can share in that as well. I invite you to come, but let's sing this together this morning. The resurrected king is resurrecting me. Stand with us, church. This is a new one for us this morning, guys. So if you can't sing along, we welcome you to sing along. But if it's a lot of words and it's just too new to you, that's okay if you can't sing along. But that doesn't mean you can't worship. Worship doesn't mean just singing. If you listen to these lyrics, they're so powerful. If you feel that and you can't sing or don't want to sing, lift your hand. Give God a shout of praise. Worship this. Your name. 
If you're thankful for the resurrection, give God some praise this morning, church. Pray with me this morning. Father, I thank you for this church, and I thank you for your church. God, you did not have to do anything but leave us dead in our sins and trespasses, but God, through your Holy Spirit and through the work of Jesus Christ, you bring us back to life. We have a spiritual resurrection in Jesus, and we can have that right now, and we praise you for that. But God, one day physically we're going to be resurrected unto glory, and we're going to be forever with the Lord. And that's all the work of Jesus, and we praise him for that here today. Go with us and help us live a resurrected life. Help us to live a life that points to the cross and points to the empty tomb and points to an eternity that's better than anything we could ever imagine. God, we love you and we praise you. Thank you for meeting with us today, God. Thank you for meeting our needs. It's in Jesus' name we pray all this and Rushwood said together, amen. I love you and there's nothing you can do about it. Have a great week. Thanks for being here.